I'll go ahead and get started. My name is Jack Phillips, and I'm an executive and mechanical engineering advisor at Texas Guadalupe, which is UT Austin's premier Hyperloop engineering student organization. Um, I've been a part of the team for the better part of the last four years, and throughout that time, I've been fortunate enough to travel to Europe and speak at European Hyperloop Week last year in the Netherlands in 2022. I've also uh, taken some time to lead a team of just about 40 engineers and personally been able to contribute about a dozen mechanical designs across three Hyperloop uh, pod designs. So, um, I'm here today with Lorenzo Bendetti from the Swiss Hyperloop Foundation Eurotube, and today we're going to be discussing the Hyperloop dream and why it has yet to be realized. Um, and in this presentation, we're going to talk mainly about some of the key challenges for Hyperloop solutions with uh, some of their leading solutions as well, starting with a focus on some of the more technical aspects, as that's what I'm most familiar with, uh, with my background. But before we get into that, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the history of Hyperloop. Um, and most people recently became familiar with the Hyperloop concept back in 2013 when Elon Musk released his white paper, Hyperloop Alpha, right? However, the underlying technical concepts that are currently being pursued in the, sci in, in the industry right now have actually been in scientific literature since the early 1900s. Um, and a lot of it's been theorized for even longer with this art from 1824 giving you a pretty good idea of that. Um, this was actually a satirical piece that was making fun of the idea, but the idea goes all the way back to the 16th century, 16th century actually. Um, because if boiled down to the basics, today's definition of Hyperloop is simply a high-speed electric vehicle that travels in a low-pressure environment like a vacuum tube and also maintains zero contact with the guideway that it rides on or within. And this render here is from the Netherlands-based company Heart Hyperloop, uh, and it demonstrates a great modern design and take on this concept. But in Musk's white paper, he focused specifically on utilizing air bearing technology to achieve this zero contact criteria. And this really just consists of a large surface area that small holes or perforations are evenly distributed across. And then high pressure air is passed through all of the small orifices. And this generates um, a lot of really small jets of air that kind of conglomerate together to form um, a little bit of pneumatic levitation and mitigates a lot of the friction that you normally would see from like a wheel-based transportation system. Um, however, Musk's take utilizing these air bearings, right, is really very, very similar and just a slight reimagining of the original concept of a vac train, which was theorized by Robert Goddard back in 1904. Um, and here we see Goddard's patent, and one of the main differences to note here that really sets what Musk put out versus this is that Goddard focused on utilizing maglev or magnetic levitation, right, to achieve this zero contact rather than air bearing specifically. Um, but we'll touch a lot more on maglev technology later. So let's go ahead and fast forward to 2017 when the Hyperloop track or Hypertube was completed at SpaceX's headquarters in Hawthorne, California. Um, and a contest was held. And this is really the birth of most modern Hyperloop teams and companies. But this contest saw hobbyists and student teams from around the world coming to compete and all bringing their own designs and builds of Hyperloop pods competing to see who can make the fastest one. Um, this here is a video of Texas Guadalupe's first Hyperloop pod, which we called Furiosa. And this, that's it testing its levitation system that was based on air bearings, very similar to what Elon Musk proposed in his white paper. This actually went on to win an innovation award at the 2017 SpaceX uh, competition for this 
levitation system. And furthermore, the air bearing levitation that we used here went on to be the basis of a preliminary patent that Texas Guadalupe actually received for high-speed air bearings. So we had a lot of traction going in that, in that sort of area. But despite this initial success for our team and others that were exploring air bearings, in the last several years, the Hyperloop industry has really seen a mass shift all to maglev, right? All to magnetic levitation, very similar to what Robert Goddard proposed back in his original VAC train papers. And some of the primary reasons for this are the numerous benefits that we see with maglev when compared to the use of air bearings for this levitation technology. Um, you have larger air gaps, considerably larger air gaps. You have higher levitation energy efficiencies. And you also have lower maintenance frequency and cost because a big problem that we saw with air bearings is when traveling at such high speeds with such small air gaps is you get a lot of tearing, right? Any sort of small rubble, debris, manufacturing intolerances or anything like that, you could get a lot of ruptures. And so that led to quite a bit of maintenance and replacements and things like that. So maglev transportation systems have actually been researched and developed at this point for over a century. And commercial maglev trains like the one seen here have been in operation for nearly 40 years. Um, and so I believe that part of the reason Hyperloop has been so slow to adopt and find cost-effective technologies is because of the early focus that a lot of the industry had on the air-bearing technologies that were popularized, right? A lot of teams, including us at Texas Guadalupe, spent years pursuing the air-bearing levitation system that we abandoned shortly thereafter for pre-existing maglev te transportation technology like we see here. Um, and so in my opinion, the answer to the vehicle design for Hyperloop that so many teams have been competing at with the SpaceX competition, now European Hyperloop Week and things like that, that fundamental question and those designs really, in my opinion, can be boiled down to utilizing pre-existing maglev transportation, right? I feel like the answer's been in front of us the whole time and only recently our teams, including us at Texas Guadalupe, beginning to actually see that. Um, and while I do feel that there are definitely some improvements that can be made on pre-existing maglev transportation technology, which I will be touching on later, um, I believe teams developing Hyperloop worldwide should really look to the already available solutions, right, for high-speed electric zero-contact transportation that have been in development for so long. And so in looking at this air bearing versus maglev discussion, we've already seen a technological dilemma in recent years. Being such a new industry, Hyperloop has really seen a lot of competing technologies for um, many, many different fields and areas, battling it out to become the standard. But I'm only gonna be up here for a few minutes, so I'll just focus on one, and that is specifically going to require us to talk about maglev technology a little bit more in-depthly. So maglev technology is divided into two suspension categories, these being electrodynamic suspension, or EDS, as I'm going to refer to it, and electromagnetic suspension, or EMS. So we'll begin with breaking down the fundamentals of EDS with the help of an animation from an educa educational YouTube channel called Lessix, which makes a lot of really good content in this field, on the SC maglev train in Japan. See, the EDS designs that the SC maglev train use, um, use repulsive magnetic forces between the train and the guideway that it sits in. Um, and to break that down, it's, it's really just as simple as the principle you see when you try to push two magnets together and they push back on one another because the like poles are getting too close. So there's that repulsive force. But the engineers that designed the SC maglev train system utilized an ingenious application of this concept by using interconnected figure eight coils, which I think are gonna pop up on the animation in just one second. And so these coils sit within the walls of the guideway. 
and actually generate passively magnetic fields that push against the moving train um, with a force that depends on how close the train gets to the wall. So in other words, as the train begins to become uncentered and drift to either side, a force, a correcting force is generated pushing the train back into the center. And this is all done with no external power or controls, and it gets a little complex with how the magnetic fields are induced and things like that. But the key note to note here is that these coils operate just due to their geometry, right, which is really, really uh, helpful and powerful for this. The same principle is used to levitate the train at a centered location about just about four inches above the ground. And this is one of the primary advantages to EDS, maglev trains, and transportation in general. You get really large air gaps. I mean, 3.9 inches, that's a very substantial distance. And you get all of these and that lateral guidance force just passively because of the shape of the coils and the guideway, right? You don't have to constantly control and adjust and everything like that. Um, this does bring up one of the primary downsides to EDS, guidance and levitation, though, and that is that the vehicle must be moving, right? So this is because of the way that those electric magnetic fields in the coils are induced. There's big magnets on the train, and we don't have to get into all of that, but basically the faster the train moves, the more stable its guidance is and its levitation as well. And so for the SE Maglev train specifically, it actually has to reach a speed of just about 93 miles per hour before it can begin levitating on its own. And before that, it just utilizes standard wheels beneath it. And so if EDS or this concept was to be applied to Hyperloop uh, in a vacuum chamber, for instance, right, wheels would also be required at those low speeds. But this downside is made up, I would say more than made up for, with the insane speeds that the SC Maglev train can reach. Uh, this vehicle seen on screen has a record of just over 375 miles per hour that they got through testing. And that actually makes it one of the fastest trains in the world. Actually, the fastest train in the world as it stands right now. Thank you. Um, and if this EDS technology were to be applied in a low pressure environment like Hyperloop, it would actually enable us to get to the target speeds that we're looking at, over 700 miles per hour in many case scenarios, right? Um, and this technology as well would enable that, those speeds while also maintaining the incredibly stable levitation and guidance. So just to summarize, by using only passive figure eight coils that don't require any power or controls, EDS allows for the vehicle to stay centered in the guideway and to maintain large air gaps on every side of it, but it has to be moving. So that's a pretty good summary. Um, and furthermore, to obtain such insane speeds as that 375 or 700 if we were to look at uh, Hyperloop, you, re you really need a frictionless electromagnetic propulsion design, right? And so the SE Maglev train's propulsion can be seen here, and it's actually relatively simple in principle um, and could definitely easily be applied in a hyperloop environment as well. So apart from those figure eight coils we've been discussing, another set of coils that we can see here called propelling coils are embedded in the walls of the guideway, and those act as electromagnets that must be powered and controlled. And these propelling coils work just like normal magnets. It's a good way to think. They each generate a north and a south pole. And so those poles interact, as we can see here, with the magnets on board the train, with like poles opposing and opposite poles attracting. And so this generates a net force that pushes the train forward. And as the train moves forward, you also have to alternate which way those poles are, are pointing, which is where that control comes into the guideway. But well, as I just summarized, it's certainly more complex, right, than using wheels and standard motors and engines. Um, this electromagnetic propulsion is really the last key that we need to have a vehicle be completely frictionless with the guideway it rides in, right? And this frictionless criteria is really, really important because if we want to reach such high speeds that we're, you know, shooting for in maglev or in hyperloop, we really need to mitigate um, and remove all aspects of friction that we can find. 
So to summarize all of that, um, to effectively achieve a maglev train design that uses EDS, the SE maglev train features two sets of coils in the guideway, one which is powered and one is which is not, another set of coils which I didn't even mention in the base of the guideway for power, and it also requires um, superconducting electromagnetic coils that must be maintained at a temperature of near absolute zero. And that deserves a talk all in and of itself. But that's to say that it's a relatively complex system, right? It's, I mean, it's definitely, it's a breathtaking and ingenious engineering design with lots of really, really elegant solutions to enable such high speeds. But as I'm sure most of you have guessed, there's also some serious downsides to this technology, which the main being the cost, right? The SE maglev train that um, we've been looking at in this video is currently estimated at costing about $350 million per mile as it's gonna be implemented in Japan. And believe it or not, that's actually not all that horrible for public transportation, depending where you're looking in the world. Um, but it's a pretty substantial cost. And while that cost is being driven up by the specific route they're using in Japan, it has lots of tunnels and bridges due to the geography. Another super large driver of that cost is the guideway. Because when you take all of these coils that are used for the levitation and the propulsion and everything like that, and you embed it inside of the guideway, you need hundreds of miles worth of it, or however long your guideway is, right? And so designing that and also designing the custom guideway for it to sit in, it gets incredibly expensive and you get into that custom infrastructure area and that um, really drives up the costs. So I believe that a potential solution to some of these downsides is found in the other side and the other category of maglev trains being EMS or electromagnetic suspension as, as can be seen here. And EMS relies on a much more familiar property of magnetism that we see, which is their attraction, right? So it's just like a permanent magnet sticking onto a metal fridge, right? It really is that simple in, in principle. And so how they achieve it in this train specifically is they fix large, super strong permanent magnets to the train, and they position that right underneath or to the sides of the guideway. And what's important to note here as well is that guideway has to be made of some ferromagnetic material. And all that means is it's just a type of metal that a magnet will stick to, like steel is most commonly used. And so when you place those magnets underneath or to the side, the attraction force that we see there can actually be controlled to generate those small levitation air gaps that you see underneath and on either side of the train. And once again, while this does require us to have relatively complex like control algorithms to constantly be adjusting the magnetic force to maintain these air gaps and stuff, what it allows us to do is it opens up the possibility of having a completely inert guideway, right? So we can have simply a structural guideway made of simple steel that doesn't have any coils or controls or power, et cetera, inside of it. And that dramatically decreases the cost of the implementation of the technology. So just a, another quick note, this uh, design right here is just a rough diagram from TransRapid and how their system works, which is a German-based maglev technology that's been making these EMS maglev train designs since about the 1960s. Um, and they've been operating since I think the early 2000s, the main one being in Shanghai. So this is a very well thought out and proven technology that's been operating for quite a while. So moving forward from that, um, you know, moving towards a inert guideway has the potential to dramatically decrease the cost, like I said, but it also opens up the potential to use standard steel stock that can be bought off the shelf as your guideway, right? While this isn't being done right now, this is one of the main improvements that I think can be made to maglev technology and EMS in general, is basically featuring just completely standard parts that can be implemented and that are already produced at mass. So that way new manufacturing techniques and casts and everything like that don't have to be created. 
Um, and so with EMS and with this, kind of, with, with this kind of technology and this principle, this is possible. Um, but just to reiterate everything that I just said, there are two main types of maglev technology, right? And I think either of them satisfy every single technical criteria we're looking for in a Hyperloop system, right? They're high-speed, electric, zero-contact um, designs, and both could absolutely be applied to a Hyperloop environment. Um, but once again, you know, some improvements could probably be made. Um, one that I haven't mentioned as well is looking into additional propulsion methodologies. So like I said, we want that to be a zero-contact electromagnetic propulsion, but there's a lot of those to be pursued, and so um, definitely looking into some more like linear induction motors and things like that, some of the newer technology could absolutely um, drop the costs and improve the implementation of this technology as well. So with all that being said, at the end of the day, in my opinion, realizing the dream of Hyperloop really might be as simple as putting a maglev train inside of a big vacuum tube. And while obviously it's not going to be so straightforward as I'm making it sound, right, there's going to be many, many issues that we see with the vehicle, such as heat dissipation and cabin pressurization and things like that. All of these problems have actually been seen and faced before, right? If we look at any other public transportation or just any other transportation technology in general that operates at low pressure environments, we have planes, we have rockets, we have space stations, all the problems that we could foreseeably see in Hyperloop have already been solved, right? And so with so few remaining technical problems, or not so few, but with the technical problems that remain already having known solutions for the most part, um, and this is the only thing really standing in the way of Hyperloop and the promise of this ultra-fast, green, energy-efficient, quiet and convenient travel, why does it feel like we're still so far away, right? It doesn't feel like we've been getting any closer. And so, unfortunately, the sad reality that I've come to know over my years in Guadalupe and the co-founding of my own Maglev startup company is that Hyperloop is not just an engineering problem by any means. Um, it's actually more so, in my opinion, a political and social perception challenge, right? And while this was somewhat defeating to come to terms with as an engineer, uh, it seems to be an unavoidable truth, right? Because I've always thought it was really interesting that student organizations and startup companies around the world stand at the top of this industry, right? Texas Guadalupe and other similar student organizations are doing genuinely groundbreaking research into some of this technology. And so I've always thought, well, why is that, right? Why aren't there these large corporations and this in intense financial competition and things like that? But I think that really just goes to show the true uphill battle that stands to be fought to actually implement and realize this Hyperloop technology. So despite these challenges, however, international groups have still been making progress to push Hyperloop forward. Um, in Canada, a Hyperloop company, Transpod, for instance, has secured a license with the government to begin construction of a full Hyperloop system. In Germany, we see Tum Hyperloop, which has begun construction of a passenger demonstrator, which is compatible with European Hyperloop safety standards, which were recently established. And in India as well, Avishkar Hyperloop is currently constructing one of the largest Hyperloop testing facilities in the entire world. So why aren't we seeing any sort of that kind of technology and that kind of movement forward in the United States? And so, first of all, Hyperloop-related Hyperloop legislation in the U.S. has yet to be established, right? Much like Airbnb in the lodging industry and Uber and Lyft in the ride-sharing industry, Hyperloop technology kind of falls into a gray area for implementation. Across America, there are limited, if any, regulations specific to Hyperloop technology, since it's such a new and novel technology. And without these regulations, 
you see companies that would be interested in scaling the technology instead of having to focus all of their time, money, and research and development into establishing the standards in the first place, right? And so that's not a very attractive model for most companies that would want to implement this. So in other words, Hyperloop can't scale right now in America because the regulations to do so safely and effectively don't even exist yet. And what further complicates establishing these standards is that there are so many government players. Um, Hyperloop systems would likely fall under the jurisdictions of both federal and state regulators, right? Depending and based on the location and potential impacts on the surrounding communities and on the environment. And depending on the system's interaction, for instance, with highways, it could potentially be regulated by both the Federal Railroad Administration and or the Federal Highway Administration. Um, the Hyperloop project would also need to pass an environmental impact review and receive several other permits, authorizations, and approvals just to break ground on the project. And this just serves to further complicate the establishment of the required kind of standards that we need in America to begin genuinely working on this kind of technology. And so as an effect of these processes, some projects in Hyperloop simply become too risky to pursue, right? For instance, a Hyperloop system was in contention for connecting Dallas and Fort Worth right along I-30, but government officials instead opted to pursue high-speed rail in 2022 due to fears that approvals could delay the development of the corridor. Um, and so with so many players on the federal and state levels, it seems that bureaucracy and politics have really bogged down Hyperloop's legal progression. And finally, just a closing note, on top of that, Lobbyists and lobbyists representing private transportation companies and oil companies continue to lobby against the government with millions of dollars annually, right, to prevent the implementation of widespread public transportation. Um, and so until legislation can be passed to address this, Hyperloop will not be realized in the United States. And so with an entanglement of politics and social perception and just the sheer cost of the technology as it stands, this has slowed the progress of Hyperloop's realization and without, with these outstanding financial challenges as well, we just haven't seen the sort of social and political push needed for real-world scalability. And so as it stands right now, once again, in America, it seems that none of the components that this future tech really requires are there or even really in the works to see a full-scale system implemented within at least the next 10 years. So it's going to take true breakthroughs technologically with driving down the cost of the technology, socially and politically especially, to make this happen. But that's just Hyperloop here in America, right? This is a worldwide phenomenon at this point. And so I'm happy to be joined by Lorenzo here on stage from the Switzerland-based Eurotube Foundation to help shed a little bit of light on the Hyperloop situation of Hyperloops elsewhere in the world and talk a little bit about what you guys are working on. So you can go ahead and take it away. Okay, so thank you very much for the nice introduction and for inviting me here. Uh, it's a pleasure actually to bring uh, um, our ideas, let's say, out from Switzerland and, and Europe uh, down to uh, Austin today. Um, so I am uh, uh, the R&D director of uh, Eurotube. Eurotube is a small uh, startup-like team of, of, uh, of engineers. Um, which we basically started our push towards this uh, innovation mobility from the SpaceX Hyperloop competition. I have actually participated to two of them, the last two, uh, with uh, the one team from Switzerland, then there was another team from Switzerland. We basically merged up uh, effort, and then we started working on this uh, full-time. The 
uh, Eurotube has been recognized by the Swiss government as a, a national facility of strategic importance, um, which means that they basically support us in developing this technology because they are basically realizing that we are getting to a point of no return where the traffic both on the side of the highway and on the side of the high-speed rail is not um, manageable anymore and we need to introduce some innovation. So independently from what we are developing, um, our work is, um, is important to, to get basically to the next generation of, of uh, infrastructure. And if there is somebody that you want to convince about Hyperloop, <laughs> Uh, the Swiss are, let's say, well convinced about that. Uh, this is a picture from 1980s. Um, it shows basically what it was called the uh, uh, Metro Suisse. Uh, Switzerland is a small country, for sure, uh, with respect to <laughs> its uh, five million people, and not, not that big. Um, and there was already in the, in the 80s an idea of a high-speed train under vacuum, underground, to connect various cities in, in Switzerland. And the reason of the underground is very interesting because in Switzerland the legislation allows you to build whatever you want under 30 meters of uh, depth. So basically under 30 meters of depth is just the uh, government ground and they can do whatever they want basically. And so if you convince the government to actually build something like this, they, they will go ahead. Uh, there is no need to discuss with your uh, neighborhood. Um, you can see already various concepts that, that are there. Okay, this, is, this image is quite uh, particular because you see the mountains and the city and then uh, this train coming out. But it shows that the interest for high-speed mobility and trying to solve this problem was already there since quite, uh, quite some time. Uh, the reason why this is not there right now is because the government of, of, of Switzerland has to decide between uh, creating the north-south corridor across Europe or uh, investing in this, and they obviously, uh, to maintain the connection between uh, them and Europe, being this uh, very mountainous <laughs> country, uh, they needed to do that. So, as Jack was saying before, um, the, um, let's say, Hyperloop uh, scene has been revived in, uh, in 2013. Uh, obviously, the, the word Hyperloop has been introduced at that point, and, and basically, the question is, okay, 10 years ago, we started working on this. There was a spark that ignited the interest of many universities. And after 10 years, we are still almost there. <laughs> we didn't move much, much further ahead. And the reality is that uh, congestions and the needs um, that we have every day for goods transportation, people transportation, are still the same, and they are ever increasing. And there is a direct correlation between um, the need of transportation and the economy of a country. If you look at all the um, countries that have high-speed rail, um, they are countries that obviously they care about their internal economy and they care about the movement of goods. Uh, think about Japan and how they are like so precise in, in building their own infrastructure. So, the point that stops many of these efforts, and we at Eurotube, that's what we started uh, basically from the beginning, is um, the, the needs to create new systems relies on the fact that you need a, a place where to test them. And this place is usually the uh, testing infrastructure. But the testing infrastructure is very expensive, and so basically we are in this loop of uh, uh, fixed loop of uh, chicken and the egg. Do I spend more money now to, to develop the things that I'm not sure that in the future will work? Well, 
that's where we started. So we need actually to speak about infrastructure and what does it really mean? Because um, clearly, um, um, I am an engineer, so I really like uh, hard data, cold truth. <laughs> this is, let's say, how I'm a little bit uh, uh, made, and this is uh, my comfort zone. Clearly, the way that we speak about infrastructure then can be skewed in many ways, and, um, and the way that we address these um, problems is very important because when um, two cities, two connecting cities, um, two close cities are connected together, we have uh, an improvement of the, of the life of the people in these cities. It's, it's not only an engineering problem, but it's also a societal change. Uh, we need to really think about what do we need in order to make uh, ourselves uh, the future of, of, of our countries. And right now we are at the point in which we are changing this way out to look at it. Um, the, there was a, a huge push in the 1960s uh, all across the world, uh, more or less, um, some countries earlier, some countries later, but basically the, the, the infrastructure that we rely on today has been built in these years. Right now we are at a point in which either the infrastructure is well maintained or the infrastructure needs to be completely replaced. And if you ask me, uh, I don't want to rebuild the 1960 infrastructure. I want to move forward with the next generation. Uh, what about smart, uh, smart infrastructure? What about uh, um, things that really can help me move from point A to point B with, in a more sustainable way? But what it takes really to build, uh, for example, the Swiss rail infrastructure. So as we said, uh, Swiss, Switzerland is the size of Vermont just as an order of ideas, five million people. Um, it has one of the most extended railway in, uh, in Europe. You can go from basically anywhere to anywhere in Switzerland. You can even reach the top of the mountains sometimes, right? But to do that, the Switzerland railway usually use more than 600,000 tons of material every year. They have to substitute continuously part and maintain continuously part. They basically change in the ground approximately 1,000 sleepers per day, and every eight years, all the switches in Switzerland, which is 13,000, they are completely replaced. So every eight years, you're basically traveling on a new infrastructure. In a push for sustainability, the Switzerland railways produces themselves, because they have hydropower plants, they produce more than 3,000 gigawatts hour of energy per year. And basically, this is 95.5% of renewable on all the system. The, the remaining 5% is basically shunting elements, basically um, working zones, basically where the machine cannot get electricity. And all of this is basically renewable. So they can get up to this thing. But can you imagine to do this in the US with the scaling up of the people, right? And so for from 5 million to 400, I guess, right? Okay, it's a factor of 80. Um, to put this into perspective, because also the, the important approach here is, uh, okay, let's try to see how we can improve uh, the current infrastructure understanding. Now, this uh, in the background that you see is uh, um, one of the first uh, um, networks that has been developed uh, as, a, as a feasibility study by a group uh, called the Hyperloop Development Program, of which Eurotube is also part. We partner up with various other companies, and we try to see how it will look like in the future. This is also because Europe is interested in this, and it's already um, pushing some funds to research on this mobility sector. Now, 
to maintain the, the road, uh, just to maintain the roads infrastructure. From now to 2050, the Europe will have to spend more than 5,000 billion euros. This is a humongous amount, but this is also what it takes to actually maintain this huge network. At the same way, the railway networks is only, only 3,000 billions. Um, and if we want to introduce Hyperloop integrated in the existing network, we are not planning to substitute the rest of the network. We are planning to integrate it. It's only an effort of, um, let's say, 1,000 billion euros. This means, obviously, a network on the full Europe. The reason why maybe you say, oh, that this is low. This is low because Hyperloop has the needs to connect uh, cities at a distance, so you don't have middle stops, and you don't have a very, um, let's say, uh, eradicated network. You need the, um, uh, the interoperability between the various systems to basically get from two cities very, uh, very far away from each other, at least 100 kilometers, uh, more than, let's say, 60 miles uh, far. And then at that point, you will use the same uh, local trains because those are working very well for local transportation, so why, why substitute it? Um, on the other hand, what we do at the, uh, at the foundation is, um, um, is, as I was telling you, I like cold hard truths, and we put basically a team of guys to actually look at the problem. If we take the existing technology that there is today and we basically build a hyperloop, does it really make any sense from the scientific point of view, from the sustainability point of view, how much energy and how much CO2 are we using? So recently we published uh, this, um, um, this work done for the Federal Office of Transportation in Switzerland, which is basically the Ministry of Transportation, and which shows that basically with the energy consumption and the emission, we are capable of uh, having the same performance of uh, uh, high-speed rail um, and then uh, allowing speeds in the excess of 900 kilometers per hour. This is important because obviously we base our decision making on these results. We want to have the system to be, first of all, a sustainable and circular. Now, a very important question. How do we build our infrastructure? So here you can see two different situations. Uh, on the left, you see the uh, highest railway in Europe um, it's um, located in a mountain that is called Jungfrau Jok. Uh, if you ever go to Switzerland, basically you can take the train up to the, up to the mountain, up to the glacier. And this has been basically built 120 years ago. On the, on the right, you see the Sangotard Base Tunnel, the longest tunnel in, in the world, 57 kilometers. Um, in both cases, is an engineering feat, and for sure it's a challenge. What is there is that the, the system that we build the things, okay, maybe today we have better machines, but still, it's hard work. It's brick and mortar. There is no, there is no fanciness or digital innovation here. The, the way that we do the, the construction is still the same. So the question is, how do we want really to improve our building capability, our construction world, our infrastructure, if we are not innovating in, in the place where basically people are working. And, um, and we have still the same uh, operators, still the same people. So one important aspect of Hyperloop, as I was telling you before, is um, that we need to integrate uh, uh, 
this new mobility system in the, in the existing network. And the reason is maybe curious, but <laughs> follow me. Um, right now, for example, in, in Switzerland, we have a lot of cargo transport during the night in order to avoid to um, create any disruption during the day to the, to the, passenger, to the passenger trains. And what happens is that the passenger network is so filled up that in some places they had basically to reduce the distance between the trains in order to allow more passengers from cities. Now, the, the Hyperloop doesn't represent a substitution of these networks. It represents a solution in order to allow higher speed between cities and alleviate the existing network uh, from their traffic and from their congestion. This is an improvement because by alleviating the existing networks, uh, we will reduce the, the maintenance that is required, we will reduce the cost that is uh, required for the maintenance, and so on and so forth. So we will allow, uh, basically, an optimization of the systems that is already there. Here, for example, there is a map of Switzerland where you see Zurich and Geneva, um, and uh, in uh, light blue you can see the, the areas that you can connect Geneva to in less than 90 minutes. Now, it's a very small part of Switzerland. Even Switzerland is a small country. This is even smaller. Um, when you, you consider to add a, a line there of Hyperloop from Geneva and Zurich, in magically, <laughs> I would say, um, the, um, the field is open. Basically, you, you have 90 minutes of distance between every, let's say, crossing cities between Zurich and Geneva. This is very important because it means that in the time that you allow yourself to commute every day, you can reach further places, you can go somewhere else, the goods are going faster, and at the same time, you're alleviating the existing networks from, the, from their load. What we are doing internally at Eurotube, besides the feasibility studies, is also working on the construction technology. As I was telling you before, the same way that we built 120 years ago, we cannot build it today. We need to innovate in this. Besides various technical, um, let's say, interesting uh, digitalization systems, what we look at is also how to produce the things. Um, first of all, we uh, started using um, concrete composite tubes. Uh, these concrete uh, tubes are basically made of uh, recycled concrete. Um, we are working with a company that basically allows us to make the circular economy around concrete, uh, basically taking old houses, breaking them down in pieces, creating new concrete, um, and ready to go. By moving this system, what we do is that basically trying to work with these companies to improve the performance of this system because if in the future we want to keep building in the same, let's say, with the same materials, obviously we need more material to, to create again the infrastructure, so we want to reduce this impact. At the same time, reducing the cost because you are using recycled material, you also reduce the CO2, and this is very important for us. The other applications that we are looking for is mobile factories. Instead of having a, a single point in which basically we um, build one part of the infrastructure, we have this moving factory that produces uh, and installs the, the tubes. Um, this is a, a work that basically has been funded by, by the research uh, foundation in, in Switzerland. And then why we choose concrete as well? Because concrete and steel, they have a very different price ranges, and with concrete, which is a local material, so everywhere that you go, you can outsource it locally, so creating jobs locally, then 
uh, it costs less. And people, obviously, you make people happier because they finally have jobs, have the possibility of developing their own system. So now the hard truth, as we were discussing before, what are the steps towards realization? So research results. Clearly, research results are already there. And, and the, the effort of the engineers are nonstop, but still, this is say, very, very well tackled. The other important point is involving stakeholders. Um, because of the recent um, COVID situation, because of the recent um, crisis uh, for, for, uh, in the economy, clearly business as usual is much more enticing than in revolu revolutionizing. But I can tell you that only from the changing, only from the modification of the current situation, we can get to a, a new state, a new way of seeing things. We need, we need to involve then the stakeholders, which are both the companies that are in the, in the various places where we, uh, where we live, but also the, the government, which they have the ultimate uh, voice on the construction of these lines. Um, this, um, the reason why, for example, Eurotube is not a startup, but is a research institution, and, and this is backed up by the government in Switzerland is because if one day we decide in Switzerland to build these lines, it's because the government says yes and because the government is paying for, them, for the construction of these lines. Everybody will uh, take advantage of it, companies and um, people around um, the country, but at the end of the day, it's the political world that has to be convinced about the efficiency of this system. And finally, the latest part, which I just introduced it, is securing funding. There is two ways, obviously, to get funding. One is, the, as we said, for the construction. The other one is for the teams, like startups, that are developing the technology. And this is, um, let's say, a problem because when you don't have the infrastructure for testing, when you don't have the space for testing, when you don't have um, the state supporting you, obviously, the life of a startup becomes hell <laughs> in some way. So, what we cannot instead um, allow ourselves is to stop, to stop at a certain point, to allow ourselves that business as usual is okay. Here there is an example of a station, uh, of a couple of stations in, uh, in uh, New York, which they have this kind of feeling that, okay, we advanced from 1917 Times Square to 2017 72nd Street um, station, but at the same time, they are, they are still the same. And we cannot allow ourselves to, to basically stand still and, and wait for the, for the change to happen. So what we do internally at Eurotube is basically this, this work of research development is our first pillar, where we basically develop the technology and we develop all the uh, research information that is needed to, to move it forward. Then we do a lot of industry collaborations. This is, let's say, the part that I'm more excited about because it's actually real development. You can see here on the left uh, um, our uh, first prototype of a concrete tube with high-performance concrete. Um, in the middle, you can see the tube that is already uh, ready for basically vacuuming, and uh, we already tested it for various weeks without leaking, and so this is uh, the technology, and on the right you can see when we were basically working with a, a valve producer in order to create this uh, sectional valve that is needed to enter and to exit from the system. And finally, 
our main project. Um, we understand that the need of infrastructure and in testing infrastructure is basically the key element that can sp spark the revolution, basically. So with the Federal uh, Railway in Switzerland, we acquired uh, uh, a piece of land which is about uh, three kilometer long, in which we are um, in the process of, uh, uh, well, we are right now in the permit process, but basically we designed all the infrastructure uh, of three kilometers um, of a modular system so that every system can be um, uh, taken in and taken out in order to test various things. And um, this 3.1 uh, kilometers is basically 2.5 uh, diameter wide, and inside you can reach up to 900 kilometers per hour. Um, having this system available would allow basically all the startup, all the technology developers, all the companies like um, we were this morning having a chat with Stadler, which they produce trains, will allow all these companies to have a place where they can test uh, directly their own system, and they can implement it then in their own products. At the same time, we are basically building this uh, research center on the left um, dedicated to vacuum transportation. Vacuum transportation is something that uh, is kind of a fancy name, but in reality it applies to many of, uh, of our um, everyday life uh, systems. Um, vacuum is used uh, not only in, uh, in transportation, but also in aerospace, in, um, in chemical engineering, in various other applications. And so the capability of uh, developing this technology will not only favor the transport industry, but also will create adjacent innovation in the other, uh, in the other sector of the industry. So finally, um, I would like to leave you with this uh, quote the, of Buckminster Fuller, that we are called to be architect of the future, not its victims. Um, the reason why we are speaking here at South by Southwest is because uh, beside engineering, there is a component of let's say, responsibility towards the future that we have. And this is a little brick that we can create and that we can basically put in place in our let's say work in our everyday life, it's very important for the future generation to take advantage of systems that can exist, but they are just blocked by the fear of change. Uh, and we don't want this fear of change to happen, and we want to, to basically create the, the world of the future, uh, but now, as soon as possible. Okay, thank you very much. I guess there is time for questions, if you, if you want. Yes, I have a question. Uh, Christopher Summers, I live here in Austin. Um, the question I have in regard, you, you had mentioned mobile uh, factories. So I'm assuming that you're talking about a, an underground digger that would simultaneously dig the tunnel while you're manufacturing the tunnel walls. Not necessary. Okay, there's an idea for you. So uh, an underground digger that would do that, but here in Austin we have uh, two or three different um, projects underway right now for 3D printing of homes. So if you combine the technology for this concrete composite, which is not actually concrete, but you get the idea, uh, and then combine that with your uh, digging, your tunnel digging technology, you could much more rapidly excavate and construct the tunnel at the same time. Is that something you guys have looked at? 
Of course, and the, the reason, uh, and thank you very much, I, yesterday I was actually at the ICON presentation, a very cool project, and I, uh, if you want to actually have a look at their work, they actually across the, the river. Um, the, the reason, so the US is a very uh, wide country, and you have enough space to actually build over the ground without, let's say, risking to get into geological problems and maybe having to dig. In Europe, this is not possible. Um, tunnels is basically the main reason why, uh, where we move. Actually, uh, in Switzerland, to increase the size of stations to allow more people to travel with the train, they had to dig under the existing stations uh, because there is no way that they can uh, put the trains somewhere else. So yeah, tunnel is definitely an option that for Europe will be the most sought options uh, at the time. And uh, developing, let's say, a fast machine to do that it will be extremely important. Um, how come the speed limit's 900 kilometers? Like, theoretically, shouldn't you be able to approach, like, the speed of light? Yeah, so one of the main issues is that in these vacuum chambers, we're not actually pulling in a perfect vacuum, right? And so that's one of the main reasons is we're at a light atmosphere. The range you're really looking there varies a lot, but you still have some component of air resistance in there. And another big one as well is the, there's definitely some resistance you get from magnetic levitation as well. It's much less when compared to bearing friction and things like that, but there is eddy currents generated and lots of other things that create magnetic resistance. So you're getting a little bit pushback anyway. It's, it's a lot less once again. And then finally, the faster you go, especially for maglev trains, right? Like the SE maglev train could probably hit higher speeds. But the higher you go, the more air resistance affects you. And so it actually becomes exponentially more power intensive to go faster. So yeah, while you probably could go that quick, um, one, it's probably a safety hazard. And two, it's just going to require an immense amount of energy. So it become, we lose a lot of that side of the energy efficiency that we're building this technology to achieve. Isn't uh, one uh, huge potential problem for the Hyperloop is a sabotage? If the Hyperloop covers long distances, it'd have to be above ground. And someone, some jerk out in the middle of nowhere could find some way of puncturing it, whether it's concrete or steel, and then all the vacuum drains out, and the cost and time of repairing it would be huge. Uh, is, there, is sabotage something that's being considered, and, and how do you make these things sabotage-proof? Or is it possible to make them sabotage-proof? Um, actually, actually, it is, and it is one of our safety uh, main safety concern. Um, we basically started with um, um, network, um, yeah, network design to be sure that the safety is is there all the time. Um, the the picture that you sh that I showed you with the with the tube uh, covered uh, covered in plastic here, it's for two reasons. One is obviously to protect the, the system from uh, um, dust, UV light, other stuff, rain, and so on, but also to create multiple layers of protection before somebody can, could sabotage it uh, with, uh, with a simple system. Um, so if somebody put a bomb next to that, it wouldn't puncture it? You could, you could do that, yes. Okay. A, an important note, I think, there as well is that there's essentially zero transportation methodologies right now that exist that can't be sabotaged right. already, right? <laughs> If you put a bomb on a normal rail, it's going to break the rail and the car's going to derail. Yeah. So um, I, I, wonder, I wonder why in Europe we have so much high-speed rail and nobody really sabotages. That's true. 
that might be more of an issue here <laughs> than it is there if we implement these systems. No, but, but long story short, is, is, a, is a problem of getting used to the thing. Is like if there is a, if there is a sabotaging effort, it, it means that there is a, a reason why it gets sabotaged, right? Uh, the, 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 the same way the high-speed rail. It's, if the view is like improving the social economics of, of a region, nobody really wants to sabotage it. Uh, I also believe that this is, let's say, one of the important uh, things that we have to, to, to be aware of. Hi, my name is Graham. A couple of questions. Uh, one is, is, what's the minimum distance you need for this to get up to speed and then slow down at the other end without uh, damaging the occupants? Mm -hmm. And uh, sort of associated, how far apart would you have to have a vacuum generating station to keep the uh, to keep the tubes at close to vacuum? Okay, um, so <laughs> this this question is uh, is from somebody that uh, is expert in the in the in the in the things. So thank you very much for this interesting question. Um, the distance between. Uh, uh, the distance to take basically the full acceleration um, will be the same as the distance for the high-speed trains. Um, we are computing uh, around uh, 20 kilometers to 30 kilometers to actually reach full speed uh, because obviously you don't want to basically create a roller coaster. You want to have a, like a smooth ride. Um, by taking in consideration this, let's say, 30 kilometers, then you have a minimum distance between two cities that make sense of between 90 and 100 kilometers to actually do the, the ride altogether. So you will not connect, for example, um, cities that are uh, only 50 kilometers distance. Um, on, the, on the project that we have, uh, 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 this one, we have 3.1 kilometers, and we have the pumping system that is basically capable of pumping down from atmospheric to zero in about uh, one and a half hour. So it's way more powerful than expected because the objective here is basically to create this system that stays always in vacuum condition and only every, let's say, one to two weeks, we just do a little bit of pumping out of it. So technically, uh, we are looking at a distance of at least 10 kilometers between pumping stations uh, and for safety reason because obviously if one section has a real problem, we need to close down this section, work on the section, and then reopen it. So this is like a, a size that makes sense from the network and planning. You should come to Florida. We've got plenty of cities that are 90 to 120 kilometers apart that <laughs> need a connection system like this. I will be happy to. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Hi, uh, my name is John. I have some question about like a, a societal problem. So, Jack, did you start the, this conversation with the, uh, early on you mentioned about, not just about technology side, but also regulation and, and the public opinion and all that. Uh, with the, with Texas Central, the railway, which is the uh, bullet uh, train between Dallas-Houston project, that has been struggled because, not because of the technology, but you know, a lot of people, a lot of the property landlord sue the company, and there's a lot of uh, backfire. So, I'm curious in the year down on it. I think because the bullet train is technology kind of ready, right? But now, now even with the, this uh, earning a, the public opinion is really hard. 
And with the, this hyperloop with you know, new technology nobody try, I, I bet they're going to be tremendous uh, yeah. opinion on it. So. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. So my, my take on the situation sort of is that we need to start with implementing systems like the train between Houston and Dallas, right? There was a ton of pushback there, and it got framed a lot of it, and a lot of it was, but it was mainly framed as like an eminent domain issue. And while this is absolutely a concern and nobody wants their land taken, right, especially by the government to, to put something in, um, I think also sometimes it helps to take a little bit of a step back because ultimately rail provides, and a maglev or hyperloop system as well, provides more efficient land usage than, like, say, a large roadway would. For instance, the population in Texas is expanding right now, right? And so as more people begin to move here and are born here, there's going to be increased travel between large cities, between Houston and Dallas, for instance. And that's going to see massive widenings of the road. If we just keep pursuing exactly the way that we're doing things right now, these roads are going to continue to grow exponentially, right, as we get more and more people. And so ultimately, that's going to take up a whole lot more land, and that's going to end up seeing a lot more eminent domain if you looked 50, 100 years ahead than if we were to implement one to two you know, high-speed rails. So I think sometimes taking a step back there can help. Now, that, that doesn't really help the landowner right? that lives in between Houston and Dallas right now. They don't really care what happens in 70 years from now, but um, I think sometimes that helps to look at it that way. And so to finish up the, the question, after we have some of those systems implemented of just traditional high-speed rail or potentially trying to get some maglev technology would be my advocation, in there as well between two locations, then I think that the public and social perception is going to be a lot more ready and accepting of more theoretical as it stands right now systems like Hyperloop. So I think we have to start small with just establishing a few more lines before we jump very to the end, right? Thank you. Uh, quick question. What state or country are you guys tipping would be the first implementation of this? <laughs> and and what, what's the over-under on the year? Um, would, you, would you guys be you know, thinking. And finally, what is the percentage cost reduction of a maglev, of a standard thing that they have in Japan versus this thing? I know it goes half the speed, but at what, at what cost reduction? Yeah, so for the first one, that's a pretty loaded question. So it's really popular in the Middle East right now. UAE has been putting a lot of money now they have a ton of money to throw around, so who knows if it'll actually get implemented. But they've uh, Virgin Hyperloop, which was which is based in the United States, just got signed for a contract there to move cargo for them and to look at a passenger rail potentially. So that's a candidate just with the sheer amount of capital that they have. Um, I'd say Europe has a pretty good shot at potentially getting some systems implemented. Do you, have a, do you have a year? <laughs> I don't know if I have a year to guess. Um, I, I would. I, um, maybe I will be unpopular, but also I would bet on China. Oh yeah, China absolutely. <laughs> China's unbelievable. Basically throwing money at the wall and <laughs> within the next ten years? I think it's I think it's possible yes. with the right support behind it. Yeah. I would I would say, yeah, like early twenty thirties there absolutely could be a system. I, uh, I know Korea speaking of Asia, Korea, Japan and uh, China have all been looking at a hyperloop technology. So and what's yeah. the cost reduction versus what they have in Japan or wherever? Yeah, that's a it's a great question. So it's not only the initial cost, but it's also a lot of the maintenance costs and things like that. And it really depends on routes. Like, like how, how I mentioned the maglev train in Japan, if you're digging a tunnel the entirety of the, of the length, it's obviously going to drive up costs pretty considerably. So I think a lot of it depends where it gets implemented. If we're going a direct comparison, um, it's really also going to depend on like some of the work that they're doing at Eurotube. Like how expensive are these tunnels to build, right? And that's not a, we don't have a firm 
answer on building those masks. And so right now, right now we are seeing that in reality we don't have a, a so the, the, the cost reduction comes during operation and during construction itself you're using basically the same money for a better system. So it's an OPEX reduction, right? Yes. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll let someone ask. <laughs> Thanks. Um, just to follow up on what he asked, um, so you're saying that Hyperloop is going to happen, maybe not in the United States, but in maybe in Europe, Asia, Middle East, it will, you're, is that what you're saying? You'd have to hope so, right? Um, or that's, that's what we're up here, that's why I still, you know, still I'm trying to do this, but um, yeah, I'd say in some of the countries, like especially in Asia, that public transportation has already been so massively implemented and they're willing to spend these high dollar amounts. China has the most high-speed rail in the entire world. Japan's currently sinking all that money in. So I think, if a, I think over the next, yeah, 10 to 15 years, if research continues as it has right now, that I think we will see at least a couple of these systems implemented. So right now, everything is kind of in the research phase, even in, you know? Yeah, um, I'd say from the infrastructure side of things, a lot of that is still being researched. It's more, it's more about, so the, the, the level of um, the technical readiness level, we actually did uh, some work on, on that, is about between six and seven. Um, the, the, the difficult thing is actually to integrate all the system all together and to basically have a unique scenario where actually we are working on standardization also in Europe. Uh, we just published the first two preliminary norms which describe the system in general. And the problem is that, uh, like Jack was saying, there are many ways that you can levitate. And if everybody chooses a different way to do that, <laughs> how, can you, how can you harmonize everything together? And that's the main, the main challenge right now. So the than... last question is, so Switzerland seems to be really on the track of establishing a hyperloop. Is that, is that correct? Or? So, sorry, can you repeat that? So Switzerland is, it seems like your plans are pretty solid. Is that, would Thank that you. be correct to say? Thank you. <laughs> yeah, the, the, um, the, 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 experience, the experience is there. The, um, the willing to innovate of, um, of the Swiss federal uh, railway industry is there. Um, Switzerland is a very technological, uh, deep tech country. So, so I think that if all the, all the cars are in place, that will be for sure, yes, a, a solid plan. Thank you so much. Yep. Hello, this is Robert from Germany, your neighbor. Um, you have shown some interesting solutions for the, for the pods. Uh, what about the tubes? I can, could imagine that's very difficult to maintain the vacuum, the, the switch between the pump station. This is technically solved. So, so you want to know if the, 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 the switch between pumping station? I mean, you have a tube, and the tube is based on vacuum, right? Yes. So, and you have a maybe a distance of over 100 kilometer in yeah. vacuum, several pumps, you yeah. have to switch between the pumps, how does it work? It works, it works like this. So um, there are pumps distributed all along the network. Inside the, the tube, uh, there is a partial vacuum because it's down to 100 to 1,000 of the external atmospheric pressure. Um, there are sections that get closed by, by a valve when you basically arrive at the station you basically get a valve close behind you, and the vacuum stays vacuum, and the, and the part in the station gets repressurized. And the only leakage comes through the fact that we have a leakage through the wall uh, of, the, of the tube, which is constant, not every material will have that. Uh, we actually did this, this, testing, this testing here in the middle, 
just for that, to actually point out how much leakage do we have per hour, per day, per week, uh, and so on. And I mean, you can see the size of the pump here is like very okay. small. And on our side, this is a, a case closed. It's possible to do so it. It's tested and it works. Sorry? It's tested and it works. At the moment, yes. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that is just about all the time that we have. But thank you guys, everybody, for, for coming out. Appreciate it. Thank you very much.